If you would stand for the reading of God's word with me, if you can. Um, we're going to continue in our series uh, called The Torah, and we're, we are in Exodus. So Exodus 19, we'll start in verse 1. It says, On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the day that they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they came, or they encamped in the wilderness. Their Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I, what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the word of God. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. As I mentioned earlier, we are continuing in our series that we have creatively called the Torah on the first five books of the Bible. And they, these five first books of Scripture are not meant to be read as five different books, but one story. Uh, Dane alluded it to it last week. It's the Bible in miniature. And what we're going to see through Exodus is God gives us his pattern or the ark of his redemptive plan. It's a story that is meant to be retold and rehearsed by the people of God. I love what N.T. Wright says about this idea of the scripture and story he says, the Bible was not primarily written in order to be read in 10-verse chunks. We have cut the Bible down to size. Now, obviously, there are some bits like the Psalms and other passages, but the book of James is written in a very short verse. But most of it, including Paul's letters and certainly the Gospels and certainly these great books like Isaiah and so on, are read in order to be experienced the way that you experience a symphony. He goes on to say, imagine if you were at a concert and you got the first 10 bars of Beethoven and then the conductor turned around and said, okay, that's all for this week. Come back, same time next week and we'll have the next 10 bars. And you would think, wait, and if somebody said, oh, but if you listen to the whole thing, you would never remember it all. Well, you'd think, he says, well, that's not the point. You don't listen to it in order to remember. And sure, you'll remember quite a lot of it. You listen to it, Wright says, in order to be swept along in the full flow and sweep and flood of it all. The story of Exodus, the story of the Torah, the story of Scripture is meant to be read and approached to sweep us into the story. Because the narrative of Scripture is not just information, but it's revelation of God that is meant to sweep us in because we are the people of faith. This is our family story. And just like when I was young, my dad would tell me about, you know, the different people in uh, our family line. And one of the, one of the uh, guys in our family line uh, actually invented the, the hand can opener. Can you believe that? That's my great, great, great grandfather sitting up here proud. You have great uh, fruit in a can because of my great, great grandfather. Right? Amazing. It's so cool. And we would tell stories, right? And you probably have those same stories. And you say, this is the story of the Jewels or, or the Smiths or the Thompsons. The Torah story is our family story because we are the sons and daughters 
of God. And so we tell the, the story of Exodus not as another book or something that happened a long, long time ago, but it's our family story. Tim Chalice says that the Exodus sets God's story on a trajectory that comes to a climax with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the story of redemption. See, the Torah is meant to demonstrate and reveal how God will redeem his people and stay faithful to the promise that we talked about last week in Genesis to Abraham, that he is going to multiply uh, Abraham into a nation and bless them so that they can go and bless the world. The book of Exodus is a book of mercy and justice, holiness and glory, but today what we're going to focus on is the overarching arc of the redemption story, of God's story, of our story. It's about God delivering his chosen people from the corruption of the old creation and delivering them into the new creation. But before we get into the, the bulk of our time, we got to do a little history, and if you if you go before and you look at the story, you realize that there really is um, no author that's actually mentioned within these first five books of the story. And if you look, you know, we never actually get the authorship, but most people settle on Moses. And I would say that's where I settle on too. But if you read ahead in the Torah, you also see that it talks about Moses' death. And I think it's safe to assume today that Moses probably didn't write that section, right? <laughs> So he probably had some help, but what, whatever the case is, this is a brilliant story, clearly inspired by God through personality and pen of the human writers by the Spirit to tell the story. And the storyteller today is not the main character. Israel, although it's a huge part of the story, is not the main character. As we said about Genesis, and we're going to say it again in Exodus, God is the main character in Exodus. And what we're going to see is, and this is kind of the big idea for today, is it's his glory he is revealing. It's his plan of redemption that's unfolding. And it's his mission that he set out to accomplish. Now, the book of Exodus breaks down, and there's so many parts of Exodus. We could spend 10 months on this book. Uh, so we're not going to get to every single part uh, of the story. But just to break it down for you, chapters 1 through 18, as you'll see up on the screen, we see God freeing Israel from slavery of Egypt. He's restoring the knowledge, or you could say the relationship of Yahweh. If you're new to church, Yahweh is just another way to say Lord. It's how the, the uh, saints of old used to say Lord. In chapter 19 through 14, God takes Israel out of the grips of slavery to Mount Sinai in order to restore the presence of Yahweh. So in, in part, you could say that Exodus is about the restoration of relationship and presence with Yahweh. Now, there's four big parts in the Exodus story, and those four big parts really give us the pattern of redemption. And number one is people, number two is Passover, number three, promise, and lastly, presence. But on the outskirts of this redemptive arc are two problems. One is Egypt, and we're going to see that in a minute. The other is Israel's rebellion and Sinai. Now, as we've been using throughout this series, we're going to see that the goal is to restore God's blessing to his people. And how he does that is through being present with his people. And if you'll put it up on the screen, there's a, a great... Uh, graphic that we have as we've gone through. So last week we looked through Genesis and we looked at the origin of our story and now we're going to get the, the pattern of redemption in Exodus and then next week we're going to look at communion with God at the peak of the mountain, sanctification and mission through Numbers and Deuteronomy. 
And the goal is that God restores relationship and presence with his people. Now, the Exodus story is part two of this story uh, that we are in called the Torah. And it's a promise to take Israel out of slavery and into the promised blessing. And chapter one of Exodus starts right where Genesis uh, ended. But there's a problem. And as you open up Exodus and begin to quickly see that God's redemptive story begins with this problem, as we see from his deceivers out of the exile of Ur to the sparing of Abraham's son by God's provision, we are sealed in his life is God's pattern of redemption. And like our story today in Exodus, it's a story of God's people traveling from death into life, from slavery to salvation. And the book opens up and connects directly to the Genesis story. And what we read is that Joseph is dead. He's no longer with the people of God. And a part of the promise is redemption. And so the question goes unanswered. Because in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, God made a promise to Abraham, the man that he called out of idolatry to know, obey, and follow him, and then sealed Abraham and his family with a, the promise and a covenant. And there are two key components uh, to God's promise to Abraham, and one that is the promise of a people that, that God would multiply the nation of Israel, and that would come out of Abraham. And number two, the promise of a promised land, Abraham family would inherit this land of Canaan. And then four centuries later, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, the promise of a nation is being fulfilled. Exodus 1, 1 through 5, we read this list of, of uh, the sons of Israel who came from Egypt, and it's like, man, the, the promise is happening here. It's being fulfilled. The total number of those who made the original journey 400 years ago previously, it was just 70, but now those 70 people have turned into this great nation, and they have multiplied and filled the land as God had said they would. But we also know that Joseph died. And it became this image of the rescuer, but still not good enough. And now the problem and this need of redemption continues. As the family grows, the question remains, how is God going to restore his promised blessing? The plan of redemption seemed possible in Joseph, right? Israel probably got excited. Finally, God sent us the right guy, yet it seemingly falls apart when he dies. And now this nation of family, of people, with, they're without Joseph. They're now forced into exile and into slavery. And the promised land is far from being in sight. Yes, they're multiplying, but now they're stuck in slavery and exile and without their rescue. And the story picks up in Exodus chapter 1. I'll start in verse 6, and I will be going throughout Exodus, so feel free to follow me. Uh, the scripture will be on the screen as well. Chapter 1, verse 6, Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. Then in verse 7 it says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and were exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. And then Pharaoh enters the scene. Pharaoh oppressed Israel, and now there arose a new king of, over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. So come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it war breaks out, and they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land." Therefore, he says, set your taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Fitham and Ramses. But the more they oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And all the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. The more that they were oppressed, 
the more the people of God multiplied. See, what happens is when you squeeze the people of God, they become stronger. And this is God's model for redemption. It's based upon rescuing us from being squeezed by the enemy and put into the slavery of sin to salvation. And let's be honest, the enemy will squeeze us and attempt to trap us and enslave us at times. We face difficulties that we don't get, we don't understand. But here's the amazing part of this story is that in the great mystery of salvation, God works through it all to bring beauty to ashes and salvation to the enslaved. And if we can jump ahead to the New Testament, this is the pattern of the cross. Jesus suffers to bring salvation. But how will these slaves be free? The Israelites find themselves enslaved by this dictator uh, kind of leader. And in response to their cry, God raises up and births, essentially births, then raises up a guy named Moses. And while Pharaoh is building massive cities all over Egypt and giving orders to kill the Israelite boys, Moses' mother births a rescuer. And as he's building cities, she's building an ark-like basket to spare his life. And right under the nose of the very man who wanted him dead, God raises up the one who would call the Israelites from Pharaoh's grip. Pharaoh, when he enslaved the Egyptians, he used slave labor. And a lot of times we read over this and we skim through it and we don't realize the kind of language that's being used. And here in verse 11, it says they were carry heavy burdens. They were oppressed in verses 12. Verse 13, the Israelites dealt with them ruthlessly. They bitter with difficult labor, it says. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. And these phrases, what they're describing is enslavement. And sometimes they'd even work them to the point of death. And here's why they did that. Because what Pharaoh thought is, the more that you oppress a people, the more that you're going to be able to squeeze out of them any remembrance of their traditions, culture, and most importantly, their God. So glad that's not our culture today, right? That was a joke, by the way. See, the truth is, this is a picture of what the enemy wants, and he wants to oppress and suppress, not because he has some great plan for us, but because he wants to get God out of you and me and to push you as far away from this thought of holiness as possible to take that out of you. See, God's goal for for them included more than simply getting his people out of Egypt. He wanted to get Egypt out of his people. Why? Because enslavement to sin leads to death. This is the strategy of the enemy. See, the strategy of God is from enslavement to redemption. The strategy of Satan is enslavement to death. So God raises up Moses in Pharaoh's house. And the same God, or the same guy who ordered Moses and all the other Israelite sons to be killed is now raising up Moses under his house. But then one day it comes along and Moses is older. He's now in a place of leadership. And he goes out to see his people in, in, in slavery. And he sees an Egyptian begin to I assume his voice raised and begun to beat on an Israelite slave. And the scripture tells us that Joseph began to get enraged. And just like Pharaoh began beating on that Egyptian soldier who was beating on the Israelite. Just like Pharaoh with the enragement to say, no, you don't touch what's mine. I'm going to take it away from you. He beats and kills this Egyptian soldier. Well, word gets around and Moses realizes 
people are finding out quickly that's him. That's why he runs. He doesn't just run to the nearest comfort inn or holiday inn. He runs to the wilderness, and he doesn't just spend a night. He spends 40 years there. You can imagine wondering, is this my plot in life? From leadership to now essentially a fugitive. And this is the travel narrative that we see not only in Moses, but in the life of Abraham. We're going to see it in Numbers, that God is going to call Moses to do something outside of what is comfortable and into something that without God is absolutely impossible. So he shows up, sets fire to a bush, and he commissions Moses to go. Just like he commissioned Abraham to go, now he's commissioning Moses to go. It reads like this in chapter 3, verses 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And they have, they have heard the cry because of their taskmasters. And I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Prezites, the Hevazites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. And he says to Moses, Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, but I will be with you, God said. And this will be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve the God on this mountain. And the mountain here is a a place of communion with God, of presence with God. Then Moses said to God, if I have come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am remembered throughout all generations. Moses is commissioned to go to free his own people and the people of God out of slavery. And like probably most of us here, Moses says to God, who am I that I should go and and do this? But what he's asking is when he asks, who should I tell them sent me He's not just asking for God's name here. He's asking for God's nature. And God responds and says, I am who I am. And I love it in verse 15. He says, this is my name forever. In other words, Moses, I am the God of the beginning and the end. I don't change, Moses. I'm I'm the Lord of all. I'm the one calling you out to go represent my plan, to restore my blessing to the people of my promise. I am the promise-keeping God, Moses, and this is why I'm calling you. Could God free uh, his people apart from Moses? Within seconds, right? But what God here is showing us is that his, his plan includes his image bearers, too. And includes us. Why? So that we can bring him glory, which we're created for, and to worship him freely. And so God calls Moses to go. He sends Moses, and he sends his brother Aaron, because Moses kind of has this back and forth with God, and he says, God, I can't speak good. You, you, you got to give me some help here. You know, figure this out. And, and God says, oh, okay, fine. I'll, I'll get Aaron. He's a great uh, 
public speaker. He's in the priest. He's in the priestly tribe. I'll send your brother Aaron with you, and they go to Egypt. And so we first see in our kind of pattern of redemption is God's promised people. And he's chosen a people for his promise. And he's going to rescue them. And next we see the Passover. Moses and Aaron go to Egypt and they confront Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt through 10 different plagues, all culminating to the Passover. God strikes down the firstborn sons in the land, but provides a way of escape through the blood of the lamb, as we're going to talk about here in a minute. Because remember what we're doing, we're tracing the pattern of redemption and it really begins to take shape at the Passover. So nine plagues or so have gone in through Egypt. And the setting in Egypt, if you can imagine or put yourself there for a moment, the mood is absolute chaos. And Egypt has just been devastated by a series of nine plagues. And this is not just a a string of tough luck. God is judging Egypt. And more than that, he's keeping his promises. Because he has sworn to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and their children would have a land for their inheritance. And yet they've been struck in, stuck in Egypt for centuries. And now it's time for God to get them out and get them home. But first, there's one more plague. The worst of them all. The final plague is a little different this time because God will be aiming at everyone this time. First, first nine were directly aimed towards Egypt and the Pharaoh. And apart from, un, from some unforeseen provision, God is going to strike down all the firstborn in Egypt, including the firstborn of Israel, but God. Exodus 12, it says, Verse 12 through 14. For I will pass through the land of Egypt, talking about this next plague that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt, and I will execute judgments. He says, I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all generations, as a statue forever, and you shall keep it as a feast. So the firstborns die, except a lamb dies in their place. Remember in Genesis, God calls Abraham to go and take his son to the altar. And what does God do? He provides a, a substitute, provision. He says, Abraham, don't strike your son. And he provides an animal sacrifice. And so God says to the people of Israel, I'm going to sacrifice your sons, but I am going to provide provision. If you put the blood on your door, I will pass over you. The lamb becomes a substitute. As a result, Israel goes free. It's a picture of them dying to the old humanity and being reborn to the firstborn, as the firstborn into the new humanity. They are free from slavery and free from death. They are free because they have died symbolically in this death of the lamb. And what death does here is it releases them from the obligations of their old life. This is why consecration of the firstborn becomes so important. The Lord said to Moses in in chapter 13, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The firstborn offspring of every woman among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. Israel died in the Passover, so no longer they belong to the first Adam and instead belong to God. Israel belonged to God as God's firstborn. 
which is symbolically marked in the belonging of every firstborn human male and animal. It is as if that was true for the human family, as if it was mirrored in each Israelite family. And so each firstborn child had to be brought back or brought back to God or from God. But the Passover is symbolic. The Israelites were free from slavery, but only from slavery to Egypt, not to sin. And this is why Jesus died on the Passover. It wasn't simply to keep a tradition. Church, it was because Jesus became our Passover. And just like he passes over the people of Israel by the blood of the lamb, so God, when he comes and returns to judge the living and the dead, he is going to pass by you and me as Jesus followers. Why? Because we're covered with the blood of the lamb. And now uh, another promise, we're sealed by his Holy Spirit. Amen? Just like Israel, he'll pass over. So we have the people of God's promise. We have the the story of redemption really taking shape in the Passover. We see that there needs to be a substitute of some kind to redeem God's people. But we also know that that God has a promise. And his promise is to take us from slavery into freedom. Now, this is a part of the, the story in Exodus that's every guy's favorite time in the, in, in the movie, right? Where the car chase begins. Anyone else? A couple of you? I'm not mad at Fast and the Furious for making like 18 movies. I love me a good car chase. Some of you are shaking your heads. Don't, don't hate. Right, right? I love a good car, car chase scene. The Israelites get free. But Pharaoh's heart, we are told, is hardened, and not just hardened, but he becomes enraged and angry and mad. So he gets his tricked-out chariots, and he rallies his troops, and he chases down the Israelites. And it's in full effect now. The Israelites are on the run, and the Egyptians are chasing after them. And see, even after you and I come to faith in Christ... The enemy now has more of a reason to pursue you and me in our freedom than he ever did when we were enslaved in our sin. You weren't a threat to him in slavery. But now we are. Because we're free. See, Pharaoh is a picture right now of the enemy chasing down God's people in order to derail God's plan. And when the Egyptians pursue these fleeing Israelites, Moses cries out to God because he comes up to a point, to a barrier, to a moment where it's like, God, did you bring us all the way out here just to get us to this point? And what he's looking at is there's freedom, but he's an ocean apart from freedom. And he cries out to God, and this is kind of my own version of it, but I can imagine Moses thinking uh, this, God, did you really bring us out here to only get us stopped here because the Egyptians are making way on us? What are we going to do? You called me to this thing, and now I'm oceans away from freedom. And so God tells Moses to take his staff. It's this epic scene, right? He throws it on the ground. And within the natural, God supernaturally takes the waters and he parts the Red Sea. And the Israelites go. And they make it to the other side. And the Egyptians, if you can imagine, they see this happening and they're like, oh, sweet, we're going to go through too. And so they they continue the chase and they go through the waters. The The Israelites are already on the other side. The Egyptians begin to go in the waters. And like what God does to our sin, he crushes 
the Egyptians in the water to their death. It's this amazing picture of rebirth and resurrection, of God destroying the enemy and bringing new life from our impossible circumstances. Our sin and the power of death is keeping us oceans apart from being set free from the sin and death. The struggle, the shame that you and I carry, yet what the story of Exodus, what the story of redemption tells you and it points to is to who? It's to Christ, right? And at the cross, he paved the way. He opened and parted the sea of death that we all are in front of. And the walls of his life and freedom give us way in. And his resurrection puts us on the other side. And he says, we then are born again. Leaving the old life behind. The the old life of slavery to some dictator called sin. And behind us. And now, as you can imagine, the ocean breeze after, you know, the the craziness of the the water being uh, put on the army. And then there's that freshness of new life that you get every time you go to the ocean, right? And you feel that and you kind of smell that and you know that. There's this this sense of new life. And, And God says in his word... Behold, everything is new. And immediately what happens is, what's the response to salvation? It's worship. And here they are in in freedom, in the newness of life, and they bust out in song and worship in chapter 15. It says that Moses and the people of Israel began to sing and they sang this song and I'll just, I'll, I'll say a couple verses of it and he say, I will sing to the Lord. Imagine it, I'm free from years of slavery and intense work. I'm free. I sing to the Lord for he is triumphantly glorious. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. This becomes that first song of praise that exalts God as both king and redeemer. But what we learn really quickly is in the story of the Israelites and life on the road and the ebb and the flow of a life towards freedom. This moment doesn't last that long. God takes Israel from Egypt and now we get to the part of the story where he brings them to Sinai from slavery to the mountaintop. And the mountain is a place to meet with God, a place to speak with God. And it's on this mountain that God reveals his heart and his plan for redemption. And in chapter 19, it says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And I was going to talk about that Red Sea moment. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that I will speak to Israel. God lays his heart of redemption down to Moses and says, not only have I borne you on wings like eagles towards freedom, but in keeping my covenant, I am going to make you a nation of priests. In other words, I'm going to make you an agent of blessing to the world. And this is God's past, present, and future plan for his people. God brings us out, he lifts us up, 
and draws us close. He brings us out, he lifts us up, and draws us close. Because what is he doing? God is saving the Israelites for relationship. Because our union with God always leads to communion with God. Our union leads to communion. And what this shows us is that our relationship with God not only depends on God, but calls us to obedience. Union leads to communion and abiding, and holiness is not the means to the end, but it's the means to the end of being with God. The whole point is not that I'm holy. The whole point is that I become holy so that I become, I'm able to have union with God. And our being informs then our doing. We become a kingdom of priests and agents of change in a broken world. But for the Israelites, this was a deep need of their souls. And as I said earlier, with life on the road, this is easy to forget. And in order to be mediators of God's presence and blessing to the other nations, there's still a problem. The people need a place for God to dwell. They need a place for presence. So we have people that God has promised he's going to multiply and make agents of blessing in the world. We have the Passover which we know now that the redemptive ark takes shape in, and we know that we're in need of a substitute, but we also need God's presence. And it says in Exodus 29, verse 6, And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. See, the presence of God is where this entire story is headed. And you actually find it throughout the entire book of Exodus. Uh, right? Moses, when God appears to him in, in a burning bush, he comes down to Mount Sinai, as we're talking about right now, in the sight of the people. He reveals himself to the leaders of Israel. He shows Moses his, his glory later on in the story uh, and declares his covenant character. And now in the second part of the Exodus story, it's actually dedicated to the instructions and the assembly of the temple where God will dwell with his covenant people. 25 verse 8, Then let them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. See, God dwelt with his people of Israel by the way of tabernacle, which becomes this incredible foreshadowing picture of the presence of God in Christ with his church. It's also a picture of the spirit living within God's people as we become the temples of God to then, filled with the spirit, to then mediate the promised blessing to the world. And just as the ground on which Moses stood at the burning bush was holy before the Lord's presence, so it's also his presence among the people that will make him holy. But what we see Shortly after all this, the Israelites began to grumble, to complain, showing their hardness of hearts. And if you just kind of track with me for a little bit, the Israelites, if you put yourself in their shoes for a second, Moses is up on the mount, mountaintop spending time with God, and it's, it's starting to last a long time, and there's probably talk within the community of Israel saying, is Moses, is he, is he dead? Is he ever going to come back? Did he leave us? Did he forsake us? And so they're bored now, right? They're wondering if uh, their uh, leader is never coming back. They become anxious and faithless and untrusting, And then rather than waiting on God and rehearsing what just happened at the Red Sea and taking them from the grips of Pharaoh to where they are now, they create another God. 
See, when we feel abandoned and left behind, we have two choices. One is to trust in God's past faithfulness for our present and our future. Or two is to create and worship another God. Because the reality is that you and I are created to worship. So whether we're worshiping the the living God or not, we are worshiping something. And so for Israel, they needed to fill that gap. They forgot. And so in the anxiety of it all, they create this God to fill the presence gap that was missing between them and Yahweh. They created a, a golden calf. They go back to idols. And just like our first parents in the Garden of Israel took things into their own hands, they didn't yet trust God's nature. And when God says something, he's going to do it. We may not agree with the timing. It may not be the easiest process. But God literally cannot back away from his promises. And they forget that. And they trade the living God for a small God. Now let's be honest. This idea of redemption in our culture today is is offensive, isn't it? Cancel that. Cancel this, do this, do that. Trust in yourself. This idea that I am so broken and in need of a rescuer is offensive. But remember what God is doing. He's laying down the carpet for redemption for the people of God. And yet, they go to idols. And why do they do that? Because they're missing his presence. And so the problem remains. From Egypt to Sinai, God's people still have a greater need. This curse of sin that is keeping them oceans apart from becoming the nation of blessing that God promised is still alive and well. And the whole point of the Torah and the question that is being asked here is how is is God's people going to live with God? Then we get to the end of Exodus. We have the people, the presence, the Passover, and yet the problem lingers. In Exodus 40, verse 35, it says, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So after all of that, From Egypt to Sinai. Chapter 40, verse 35 says that Moses never entered the tent. Never made it. The one who was supposed to rescue Israel only got so far. The one who God raised up to free his people was not enough. Birthing in God's people more expectation, hunger, and need for a redeemer. It ends with a problem, but it builds expectation. And listen, we might be standing on the other side of the Exodus story, and spoiler alert for those of you who aren't reading ahead, God does send a rescuer, and his name is Jesus, right? 
who becomes our Passover, our rescuer, our across the sea of death in our cloud of provision, who, who because of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, now lives in you and me as followers of Jesus, making us a kingdom of priests. And the Spirit of God now gives you and me the ability to go into the world and to mediate blessing to the people all around us for the sake of change and God's redemptive story. But it also builds in us an expectation that God is still on mission. Amen? And one day he will make everything new and there will be no more tears and no more mass. Amen to that. Um, right? No more stress. No more back and forth into sin and worshiping the, another little God. No. We are headed to the promised land. And if it's told us any, if Exodus has taught us anything, it is that God will come through in the end. Amen? It's so easy for you and me to get caught up in the moment and see what's going on and what's not been done yet, and to feel like we're just doing life. But no, we're headed to the promised land. The Exodus story is a story, family of God, is our, of our past, present, and future. Meant to be rehearsed and retold. God's redemption story in Exodus shows us that if God is faithful then, church, he's going to be faithful now. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that we don't have to stand here wondering if you're going to come through. We know that you are. We've seen your hand in Exodus. We've seen your work on the cross. We've seen your death and sin conquering power in the resurrection. And we know that you are on the throne, Jesus. And that one day you will come back to judge the living and the dead. To bring us to the promised land the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. So now, Lord, as we live on mission, would you birth in us an expectation that you're coming back, that you haven't forgotten, that you've made a way through the sea of death to new life in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.